0: Really inviting people in and opening up the door to say, like, let's have these conversations now, as opposed to when we are in the middle of a storm. So we need people to be role modeling what that looks like, which challenges the culture that has existed for a really long time. This is Kate Coons, and you are tuned in to the Avalanche Hour
1: podcast. Hey-o. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your premier destination for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Sean Zimmerman-Wall. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control safety through innovation. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. As we continue to adapt our own unique situations in the mountains, having good people to back us up is important. Perhaps your professional support network is in need of some specialized engineering services to help your operation take the next step. Enter Six Point Engineering, an additional sponsor of today's show. Six Point Engineering out of Nelson, British Columbia specializes in engineering, design, avalanche risk assessment, mountain safety services, and project management. Greg Johnson and his team of engineers and avalanche professionals have a unique skill set that includes hazard assessment, infrastructure design, avalanche forecasting, and avalanche control programs. They serve the oil and gas, transportation, hydroelectric, mining, ski area, and land development industries. If you're scratching your head over some difficult questions for your next project in the mountains, look no further than Six Point Engineering. You can find out more at www.sixpointeng.com. Check out our interview with Greg back on episode 519 to hear more. the winter that keeps on giving, at least around these parts, rolls on with a magnitude of magnificent snowfall the likes we've not seen in decades. But you know us snow people have short memories. I'll leave an open invitation to our international guest hosts if they need to come get their powder fix here in the good old U.S. of A. As we reflect on the season so far, it's been pretty incredible to remember what it can look like in places like Little Cottonwood Canyon, the Sierra, and other haunts that have been a bit behind the average for a few years now. With the deepening snowpack, we had put to bed a lot of our persistent issues, but some transient layers have come into play. In many areas though, the storm and wind slabs have been a real player, and during the latter part of February, a multitude of avalanche accidents involving multiple fatalities have topped the headlines. In these instances, all modes of travel have been impacted. Climbers, skiers and boarders, and snow machiners. States like Colorado have already surpassed their average number of fatalities in a year, while others seem to be dodging some bullets. It's hard to express the ripple effects these events have on their respective communities. May the families and friends of those killed in the mountains find what they need to carry on. If you or your colleagues are suffering and need assistance, there are many resources out there. The American Avalanche Association Resilience project has a number of resources listed, and you can also click back through some of our previous episodes hosted by both Brooke and Caleb with industry professionals looking to make a difference and help improve our mental health and wellness and overall resilience. Well, let's move into today's session then. I sit down with Kate Coons. Kate hails from Victor, Idaho, and has been in the Tetons for some time now. She's a motivated, organized, and humble individual with a lot of great insights into how we are evolving as an industry and what we can borrow from other cultures and disciplines to give us the tools to tackle our current challenges. We take on a number of topics, ranging from risk management, to teaching avalanche courses, to the often neglected R word, rest, and examining ways to improve our own self care and that of our colleagues. Without further ado, lifting off with Kate in three, two, one. Good morning, Kate. How are you today?
0: I am doing really well. It's a beautiful day here in Victor, Idaho. It's uh, five degrees, bluebird, just the way I like it.
1: Yeah, kind of right in the smack middle of February and a uh, little bit of high pressure. But yeah, cold here too. Salt Lake is frigid. Have uh, you been out on the skin track or in the mountains in the last few days?
0: Well, yesterday I um, I went out for a little after work um, skin with two friends, which was great. Um, just a quick run, but that was on the heels of, uh, I had five days of a private level one with a client, a ski client that I've had for about five years. And she came and <clears throat> um, came to Victor and we spent five days in the Tetons um, basically doing Content skiing a bunch, and um, it was it was great because there there were a couple problems that we were searching for, um, and we started off with a bit of new snow and then it was kind of high pressure but uh, and quite warm, so then we were kind of forced to go in search of cold snow and um, we actually found some great skiing, which oftentimes, as we know, on avalanche courses, you don't get to do a lot of skiing. But when you're only teaching one person who is actually um, strong and capable, you can do a lot. And we had five days, which is a total luxury um, to do a, a level one on. So.
1: Sounds like a good, uh, good way to do things. What are, yeah. um, what are conditions like there? It sounds like you kind of enumerated what they are now. You got a pretty deep, deep snowpack going on
0: yeah, the snowpack is um, it's actually great compared to last year. Um, we've got a pretty deep snowpack up to about two meters. Um we've got, we haven't really had any big cycles, despite having a very large storm a few weeks ago. We had about four feet of snow that fell, um, followed by another one-foot storm. Um, then we had quite a bit of wind, and you know everybody was saying there must be wind slab, and everybody was out hunting for it all over the place um, during my level one, bumping into a lot of people, and we couldn't find it on all aspects and all elevations. Um, really high up, we were seeing that, and then we had some warming, but in general, we are having... Um, Pretty solid year, which is a welcome uh, change from last year when we were in a complete drought for basically all of February.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back on that last season and then contrasting that, at least locally here, with the two Februaries prior, where we had these historic atmospheric rivers hit Little Cottonwood yeah. Canyon and yeah. basically bring the house down, yeah. um, creating like new avalanche paths. Yeah. It's been an interesting, like, what, four years in this time warp that we've found ourselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Last year at this time I was skiing lines that I wouldn't think about skiing until the spring because it was open season. So I was exploring down into the Palisades and into the Snake River Range, um, into some areas that have some longer approaches and definitely, um, higher consequence terrain, but we were in low avalanche conditions. And so it was pretty neat to go explore some new areas. But truth be told, I would have just been really happy to be powder skiing and like meadow skipping through the aspens because I really enjoyed that. <laughs> but it was a great way to spend last winter. And then this year, it's just been a lot easier to be able to just have a quick like two hour, you know, one to two hour ski in the morning or in the afternoon just to get out and move the legs around.
1: Right on. Yeah, the movement's super critical. Um, particularly when, as we'll get into, you have so many different job roles that take you to different parts of the world and uh, exercise different parts of your mind and body. So why don't you give us just a little uh, brief history of who Kate Coons is and uh, kind of where you hail from and how you ended up where you are and maybe some um, critical points in your career to get you where you are now.
0: Um. Yeah. I always think it's a funny question because I don't like to have a lot of attention drawn to myself. And so, <laughs> so who Kate Coons is, um, I really like to draw attention to the fact that I grew up in New Jersey, um, that I learned how to ski at a little hill as part of my after school program, um, where you would park on top and there was one lift and it was just basically a field of ice moguls. And my sister and I would just try and push each other off the Poma. So there was a chairlift and a Poma, um, Neither of my parents skied, uh, but my dad learned how to ski because my sister and I loved it. And so we spent uh, most of growing up through high school going to Vermont. My parents would rent a place up there, which I always felt really lucky that even though I had parents who weren't into skiing, they liked cold weather. Um, And then kind of fast forward, I I ended up out West and I worked for Knowles for a really long time and ended up in the role of essentially overseeing the winter program. And so I trained instructors and spent a lot of time sleeping in snow caves. And um, one of my many mentors is Big Don, Don Sheriff. And I remember he said that, um, he was also a Knowles instructor. And he said, I learned the most about snow by sleeping in a snow cave for 10 days at a time. Because you are moving snow all the time, you make it into this mound and then you sleep in it and you actually see metamorphosis happening right in front of your eyes. So if you built your snow cave well, your Quincy, um, it wouldn't sink in on you like a donut. Um, if you really created like this nice steep walls and all the things, you could actually stay in that for about six days. So um, nevertheless, Knowles gave me an excellent foundation to be an educator um, and just to be able to see a lot of terrain that I probably wouldn't as just like a recreational tour, um, getting deep into the mountains in the Azorkas, um in the Tetons and in the winds. Um, and that led me to uh working as a ski guide. Um my first winter of working as a ski guide was in 2010 for Teton Backcountry Guides in the Tetons. And actually I know the owners because we worked uh together as caterers in the summer. And so as any good uh, worker in the avalanche industry, ski world, um, we've all had multiple jobs. And so to live in Victor, Idaho, of which I've lived here since about 2001, um, one of my many jobs was uh, cooking food in the summer. And I worked with a number of other folks who worked in the ski industry because we were just waiting for it to snow and we needed money to make it to that point. So um, so I started working as a tail guide back in 2010, but simultaneously continued to work for Knowles, started teaching avalanche courses. Um, through the years, I've also, again, like having all of these jobs, I went down to Antarctica and worked with science groups in remote field camps. So I started doing that back in 07. And mixed into this, uh, I was an anthropology major in college. And, um, when I was 20, I went to Nepal for six months and fell in love with that part of the world. Um, and so when I graduated college, I moved back to Nepal and taught English there, um, really learned the language quite well and that part of the world has just kind of stolen my heart and so it's a place that I continue to stay connected to and so you know at some point I was like god maybe I was supposed to be an anthropologist, or maybe I was supposed to like just do that in my life but in many respects it kind of combined things that I love right like beautiful mountains and then you have these people who live in the mountains Um, so it's a different type of wilderness in that part of the world but um my desire to learn and just be curious about everybody that I meet and be curious about things that are different from the place that I grew up in. Um, I think Nepal offered uh, something that was pretty darn different from growing up in New Jersey. <laughs> and I, I went to the mall a lot as a kid, you know, that was like, that was what you did. But I always, um, we we spent a lot of time outdoors, even though I was, I grew up in New Jersey, that was a big part of my mother's um, upbringing. And so she grew up on a 300 acres um, of land outside of New York City. And so we were kind of raised with this like curiosity of the natural world. And so um, so I always had that. But then, you know, I lived outside of New York City. And um, what everybody else did was go to the mall and go shopping. So <laughs> I think I did that to try and fit in. And then I realized like, yeah, this isn't for me. I'm, I'm moving out west. So Yeah, and so I guess fast forward to right now, um, I uh, work for the U.S. Antarctic Program, and I am the field risk manager, which means that I help oversee kind of our risk management strategy and safety and field camps in Antarctica, so outside of McMurdo, really anything that happens outside of McMurdo Station, Um, and this is my first full-time job, meaning 40 hours a week, Um, I have a desk now (laughs) and I I sit at it a lot or I stand and I actually have a bike that goes under my desk so I can actually pedal. Um, But I think that leading up to this point, having so many different jobs, I still have a hard time saying no. And I feel really strongly about um, avalanche education. I, I really enjoy interacting with people. And so I continue to teach pro courses for Airy. Um, I do these occasional level ones, whether they're private or recreational for whomever. And then I still ski guide occasionally, um, because I like it. So even though sometimes I wake up in the morning, I'm like, how am I going to fit everything into this week? Sometimes it, somehow it happens. So yeah, that's my, a little bit of who I am. Yeah.
1: Thanks a lot, Kate. That was a great synopsis of how you've gotten to where you are and uh, the places that and people that draw you through that thread um, over the years. Uh, and certainly like your, your new job role there with the U.S.-Antarctic program is, uh, I would imagine, quite detail-oriented when you're talking about bringing a bunch of scientists down to the frozen continent for X amount of months Um, to conduct field work um, in a pretty austere environment, uh, pretty far away from just about every other creature comfort. Although I understand that you all probably try to make it as comfortable as possible. So the scientists keep wanting to come back and the field risk managers want this to be their job. Uh, Maybe walk us through a little bit about what that kind of job entails and uh, and how you were able to morph some of your skill set in the snow and avalanche world into working with that program.
0: Yeah, um, that is a great question. Um, so my job didn't exist until I came into it, which has been a really phenomenal opportunity to determine the course of what this job is. Now, it's not that the functions didn't exist prior to me coming to this job, but I've been able to take it to a different level and I think, um, focus on a number of things. Um, so, yeah, so what does it entail? So, essentially, we spend a lot of the year planning and preparing for the field season. So, right now, um, McMurdo Station is going to close down for winter next week, um, which means that we have a kind of skeleton crew that keeps the station up and running, but there's no science that's happening during that period of time. So, in the coming months, what we'll be doing is we'll be looking at scientific proposals to see what it is that scientists are proposing and wanting to do. And then we determine like, okay, we can support this. We cannot support that. This is how we're going to support it by sending a mountaineer with you or, or whatever it is. And so, um, so I'm looking at it with this lens of what are the risks and how do we mitigate them? And then what's the plan around that? And so once we get closer to the end of the summer, I start to do meetings with all of the groups that are going into the field. And a lot of that is leadership training, you know, because it's not just about here's the risk, mitigate it. But you are also managing a team of people in a really extreme environment. And that takes a lot, right? Like there is that human dynamics. So how do we manage power dynamics? How do we manage the fact that we're gonna get tired and there's stressful components to working in the field? And so we start looking at that and then we actually write up a field plan that has all the details and the logistics and whatnot of what they're doing. So that's kind of like an overview of what I do, but I think um, one of the things that has been really exciting for me is that I've taken a lot of things from the avalanche industry, and I've incorporated that into how we look at field planning. And so for example, I think about human factors and decision-making and how the subjective hazards are oftentimes the things that we assume that people understand. You know, We assume that you know how to handle yourself but a lot of times we have grad students who've never really camped or been in the cold or whatnot. And their first field experience is Antarctica. So that's, that's fairly extreme. (laughs) And so, um, so I'm bringing a lot of these, you know, I bring in talking about facets and talking about like decision-making. And it's funny because sometimes people are like, well, this is fascinating stuff. And I'm like, I didn't make this up folks. Like there's this whole other industry that's using this (laughs) as ways to make decisions and how to manage people. Um, But it's been really cool because, uh, people are, are really excited and engaged with these topics because we're human and we are all part of the human experience, whether we like it or not. And so it depends on what, how you wake up in the morning, which side of the tent you wake up, you know, some days you wake up and you're ready to go. Other days you've got things weighing on your mind because something's happening at home and you're not there. Um, and so really inviting people in and opening up this door to say, like, let's have these conversations now as opposed to when we are in the middle of a storm. So we call it condition one is like, um, it's like whiteout conditions. Like you can't see anything and that's just stressful, right? Like how many get to the bathroom? Like how many get to the toilet tent? Because it is like blowing crazy outside. I can't see anything and oh, it's my, it's my day to cook. And so I've got to do that in the middle of a storm, but then I might be stressed out about something else. So how, how do I Do that. So, really trying to um, focus on those base human level risk factors that we bring um, and having conversations around that. And I think people have been really open to that. And that's really exciting to me because I think that it is super important.
1: Wow, Kate, that sounds like a really dynamic workplace. Um, And it's also really interesting how you've looked to transfer some of your skills to this community and this workplace that you find yourself in. Um, I can't be but struck by awe too that this program didn't have this position before and that you're kind of building it out as you go. And that's not the first time you've done that. Um, if I can reference some things with the American Avalanche Association in the pro program getting going, you were building a plane as you were flying it, so to speak. Um, it seems like the stakes are a little higher where you're at now. So how do you... <laughs> How do you um continue to operate in that environment? Like you're, you're kind of like you said, behind a desk a lot of the times? What's it like having to like morph that when you actually like go into the field and you're on the ice?
0: Yeah, well, I should say, I mean, I think there is something when I took this job, I was like, hmm, this is very similar to my job at A3. Like, what is it about me that likes these <laughs> that kind of challenge? But I also want to recognize I am not flying the plane by myself. Um, The functions of my job were done by other people. So what was recognized that like, what I feel like is important as a field risk manager is that I kind of, I work somewhat alone in that nobody reports to me. So I can be somewhat um, objective without having people that I'm responsible for so I really like that, but I lean on so many people to make my job possible. So um, there are people who are very much focused on the field training aspect, you know, and that's something I, I oversee and I can help offer some, you know, some guidance, but for the most part, that is somebody else's responsibility. Um, so yeah, so we do all this planning and then, you know, we go down to the ice and I'm only there for about two months and I'm usually there at the beginning of the season. So I get to have face to face contact with everybody before they go into the field. Now I don't really go out to field camps anymore and spend weeks at a time there, but I do get to go visit camps, which is, which is great. But a lot of my job is done from a little bit of the 30,000 foot view. And sometimes I have this like nostalgia of what am I doing? I just want to go like be in a tent for four months and be out on like the Antarctic plateau and, and fully involved. And, um, I also realize that the age of 47, I'm pretty happy um, not doing that. And if I sleep in a tent, I'm pretty psyched to be doing it with my friends <laughs> and not necessarily for work. Um, so, yeah, so I, the job is, continues to evolve. I work really closely with the National Science Foundation because they are essentially our client or the people that we are answering to. So I'm also trying to work with them to help shape what we, how we view field risk management um, and what that is. And when it's in the field, there's, it's really hard to be black and white, much like in the avalanche world. And so we are taking all of the information and we are making the best decision that we can in the moment. And so we will plan things out to a T in Antarctica down to how much fuel do we have and how many uh, Hilo hours do we have. And this is the gear that we have. And no doubt, like weather happens. COVID happens, you know, like people get sick and we have to change the plan. Um, And so we are constantly asked to be nimble. Um, So I feel like I've been doing that my whole life, like choosing jobs that are always like ever changing, even catering, right? Like when I was working cooking, (laughs) like, you know, something gets burnt and you have to change, change it up. And so I think um, no surprise, I continue to choose jobs that um, lack some routine which I like. And I'd say that's even like how I live my life, even in my house, right? It's like, I don't ever do anything the same twice. So, except know where my ski boots and my skins are, like those go to the same place all the time, you know, basic things like that. But um, but um I think I like the challenge of this, the goalpost that is moving a little bit. Because again, I think as humans, that's, we are never static. And so, um, you know, the world went through a is still going through this huge change called COVID and we are having to adjust how we do everything. You know, whether you're a parent, whether, you know, whether you work in a, in the medical world, whatever it is, like we are, we have to be nimble all the time. And so I think I'm fascinated and curious ab- about that human experience and how do we know ourselves and know the people we work with to make the best decisions possible? Because really we're, we're kind of capable of anything if we can communicate. I think maybe that's just like a really um, optimistic view of life, but (laughs) most people who know me would say that I'm pretty darn optimistic. So,
1: well, in this industry, I think, you know, when we're kind of surrounded by an ever present specter of loss or, you know, trauma, like to have an upbeat and optimistic attitude is the way you get to get enjoyment out of it on top of the aesthetic Elements of being in the mountains, in the backcountry, or out on the ice. Totally. um, On top of the camaraderie that you develop with your team or your partners, or whether that's a field team or whether it's just you and one other person walking yourselves through the mountains or across the ice, as it may be. Um, So, how do you kind of uh, facilitate those uh, team development um, pieces so that you know that you can function well when you had this recipe? but some of the ingredients all of a sudden show up missing or someone comes into the kitchen and just throws it asunder. Like, like you said, communication is at the root of that. So how do you approach that as a, as a manager?
0: Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, at the core of who I am, I think I generally am somebody who can walk into a room and I have a lot of interest and curiosity about other people. And I think that puts people at ease, but I'm not with every team in the field. So I can't expect that people are going to emulate my personality traits elsewhere. Um, I can start the conversation and I can hopefully create a space in which people feel like they can share that stuff. But the onus is on the team to then do that. And so one thing that we have kind of instituted or mandated, those sound like really technical terms, but, um, we are asking people to engage in a discussion around positive working environments. And some of this is kind of born out of some of our diversity, equity, and inclusion work that we've been doing within the program, but trying to just bring it down to this level of what do you need to work in a, in a workplace that feels healthy and supportive and positive. And so we, um, Yeah. So we basically engage in this conversation. I help facilitate those conversations and groups come up with like a group agreement. And, um, I think it's easy to build that. It's easy to write one out, but the question I really ask and I push people to answer is how are you going to maintain that? Maintain that when your field season is delayed because of bad weather or, you know, equipment failure or whatever it is, like how will you come back to these, tenants that you are building with your team? And what does that look like? So I would say that it's still a pretty new thing for people because they're like, we're just out here doing science. But um, what I'm hearing, especially right now, is people have returned from the field. um, They're on their way home and we're doing debriefs. And what I'm hearing is like, hey, that was a really important conversation for us to have because I felt like it gave me a way to have a conversation when I needed to, you know, when I was having a hard time in the middle of the season or, you know, this wasn't working for me and I was able to bring it up. And so to me, those are these small wins where we are opening the door and asking people to be more comfortable having the uncomfortable conversations. And I hope someday we don't call them uncomfortable conversations, you know, that they're just conversations that we have that are helping all of us set up be set up for success. So I think the positive working environment is like this one concrete thing that we have done um, that is helping. We still have a lot of work to do, you know, I think. Um, and we're, we see that in the avalanche industry as well, right? We are trying to be a more inclusive um, industry and we're doing all sorts of things, but we're tripping up along the way. We're not, we're not perfect at it, um, but we're, we're trying.
1: Yeah. And It's not lost on me. And I kind of had this realization not long ago that in both of these workplaces, you spend so much time trying to reduce your vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that in a team dynamic, you actually need to be vulnerable. So there's actually this like dissonance that occurs, I think, at a subconscious level that makes it difficult for us to do both, like reduce our vulnerability and exposure to a hazard and mitigate risk in one certain way. But the way that we mitigate this interpersonal risk, as it were, is by being more vulnerable and open. And so that's like a really powerful thought to hold at the same time. It's like double think, you know? So thinking about how you do that at your workplace um, seems really interesting to me with such a broad context of like the National Science Foundation and (laughs) trying to do that. You know, it's like, whoa, that's a juggernaut um but then you can kind of probably distill it into like this little bit smaller context and make it feel more attainable. So do you have some um ideas that you've been kind of exploring or or concepts that you've been working on that you've seen some like positive returns on that maybe we could take with us in our work in this world?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um I so one thing which is a theme that I think I have both personally and professionally latched onto in the last couple of years is this idea of curiosity over assumptions. And it's it's not really this super tangible like here's the exercise do this, right? But I think um well putting that aside for one second just what you were saying about vulnerabilities I think is the when we think about that in an avalanche world we oftentimes in the avalanche world, we're looking at these objective factors. Like how do we reduce our vulnerability in the sense of like terrain and aspect and avalanche problem and whatnot. But then there's this whole other subjective piece of like, we as humans are vulnerable and we need to be vulnerable to not subject ourselves to the <laughs> objective hazards, if that makes sense. Um, but I think getting back to the curiosity over assumptions, I keep coming back to this place of like, wow, if I had done this my whole life, where would I be? Like I'm a curious person. I think sometimes um I, I think people uh understand that about me pretty immediately. I ask lots of questions and um maybe it's bordering on nosy sometimes, but I wanna know who people are. I wanna know what makes them tick because I wanna spend my time with quality people. Um and so I wanna like tease out who they are, but I think ultimately you know, if we think about facets and like the expert halo, um, we make assumptions about people all the time. Oh, John Zimmerman wall. He's been in the avalanche industry for a long time. He's a ski patroller, so he must know everything. So I'm not going to question him (laughs) or, you know, I, even if somebody said that about me, that I've been in the avalanche industry for a really long time, I'm like, do not assume that I know everything. Like sometimes I'm like, I don't know, I'm going to go find out. But I think if we, um, When we make assumptions about people, it sets us on this path, and then we just make one assumption after another. And then we're in a situation where I'm stressed out, you're stressed out, we're in a situation where it's stressful, and we're potentially not going to make good decisions because now we're just, we've kind of almost cemented in our mind these assumptions. And so I think it also for, you know, like people who are new to the avalanche industry on a level one. I always tell people at the end of a level one, because oftentimes, you know, at the end of level one, you feel like your confidence has dipped down. (laughs) You're like, I don't know anything. I'm going to die if I go into avalanche terrain. And they're like, I can't remember it. I just drank from the fire hose. I'm so thirsty. And I said, yeah, but you know what? Like, if you can just ask a question and make an observation, you don't have to have the answer, right? And so I think you you are part of the conversation. And so I think in Antarctica, same thing. Like, Maybe you've been down to the ice 20 years and then you're, or maybe you've been down there for one year. Like you may be asking the same question in your brain, but you might make an assumption depending on that person's experience. And then you miss this opportunity to have a conversation. And so again, it's this kind of bigger concept, but I do think by driving that home to people, like, are you making an assumption right now? Or is there a conversation we could have to just like clear this up? I think that that goes a long way because again, if you end up so far down the path of assumptions, then you have to unpack and untangle everything that happened up until that point. And so, um, yeah, so that's that's something that, it's not this black and white like SOP, standard operating procedure that I'm like, we're gonna do this, <laughs> but more just having these conversations with people um, and kind of pushing that theme. I think, uh, yeah, I'm seeing that it's actually like opening up doors to, decision-making that's happening on another level. And I'm hearing from people who I think oftentimes didn't feel like they had a voice.
1: That sounds really key, particularly in a, in a risky environment um, like, like, like both of these worlds entail. So in terms of how you get people to um, be curious, but be openly curious, because I got all kinds of questions in my head. Do I always ask them? not always. Yeah. And that can be, I think, more of a factor of the physical environment, but maybe the team environment and kind of what structures have been in place or what uh, personalities may have been instilled for a long time that make it really difficult to be curious without feeling like your ideas are going to be overrun or you're going to be asked to kind of like, you know, just buckle up and we, we got this. Um, you're here. And you're going to do a good job, but like we're going to kind of make the decisions. You know, speaking about some experiences I've had, that's often what ends up happening. So you may come into this environment really curious, not wanting to make assumptions, but you're kind of overruled by this. Let's use the word culture, which is somewhat overused nowadays, but makes a lot of sense. What is the culture of that work environment? Um, And you're you're saying about building this like positive, productive work environment is a real critical element. So how can you work on that? like team dynamic or power dynamic or both to make this curiosity really come to fruition in a, in a lively and meaningful way.
0: Therein lies the rub, Sean. <laughs> I mean, it's really easy. About this as being, here's the question. And it's going to break down all these barriers and everybody's going to be able to say, I'm stressed out by this and this is what I need. But like, again, we're humans. And so I think when looking at this, um, I don't necessarily say it's a problem, but it's systemic, right? So what we need is a number of things. So it needs to be from the top down, from the bottom up, from the middle. Like we need the ripple effect to go in all different directions. And so we need people to be role modeling what that looks like, which challenges the culture that has existed for a really long time, right? That like, you're the patrol director or you're the route leader or you're the lead guide or whatever it is and whatever they say goes. Now I'm not necessarily challenging the chain of command. Like those exist for a reason. Um, but if there's not a decision that needs to be made right at the moment or safety is not, you know, in the moment we need to like make this decision because it's like, you know, life or death, whatever it is. Um, how do we as leaders, you know, whether it's a course director on an avalanche course, you know, how do we role model making space for positive and inclusive work environments? Conversely, you're brand new. You need to come in with some ability to also like be open and honest, but you're not going to do that unless like everybody else who's already been in the room for a long time creates the space for that. So it's really hard. (laughs) I don't know that there, there is an answer. And so I've decided that this work is like the ultra, ultra endurance event. It's not a sprint. It's not even a marathon, right? Like we are working on this for maybe in 10 years, I can look back and say, huh, I kind of had a hand a little bit in a culture shift. You know, it's like looking at it as um, what is the overall, like, yeah, how to put this. It's just hard work. I guess that's what I'll say. It's um, And it's not something like I'm going to write this one policy or best practice and we're going to wake up tomorrow and we're just going to look really differently. And so for myself, as I've been in more of a leadership role in this industry and then now in this job, um, I look at just how I show up to work each day as well, how I treat people, how I do my work and trying to role model what I want to see around me. Now, do I always get it right? No, but I'm working really hard <laughs> to try and do that and just be open and honest and vulnerable of like, Oh yeah, I screwed that up or I didn't do that well and making that a norm that that's okay. And I see this a lot in the science world, right? Like you have people whose livelihood has been their research and then they go to Antarctica and they publish papers and they're the ones making a difference in climate change. And so, you know, sometimes I sit in these meetings and I'm like, oh my God, you wrote this article and you're doing this research that is really affecting change on many levels, or we hope it's going to affect change. Um, but what it boils down to is that person is just another human being experiencing life just like I am, you know, with different factors, of course, but we're kind of generally made up of the same sauce. And so I think that uh, by having these real conversations and saying, like, can we just peel back the layers of like all these things that define us? who we are we still just have a lot of the same vulnerabilities again this is easier said me to say this to you um and i love the challenge of having these conversations with people and i know that it's not a place of comfort for a lot of others and so that is one challenge that i have is that i can come up with these ideas and say hey this this looks great on paper we're going to do this but that also requires everybody else to be really comfortable in those spaces. And so um, so it's a challenge. But uh, as I said before, I seem to like fall into these roles where there's like this challenge that doesn't have a very clear path or answer. And somehow that, that fuels me and keeps me excited.
1: Yeah, I, I can see the passion in your face and, and hear it in your voice. And from what I know from working alongside you very closely and being your friend for a while, these are the kinds of like traits and qualities that make differences down the road. Even if it's just a small, you're knocking over one small domino now, that's going to take a while to cascade into this bigger piece. Um, it is this like entire ecosystem that we all play a part in. We all have to be, um, I think the most critical thing we can be is self-aware, um, and self-awareness, uh, often comes at the sacrifice of your overall bandwidth. So like, where are you in your continuum of energy? Like, are you totally maxed? And therefore your self-awareness is decreased. It's almost like your mind is shunting everything right to the core. So you can just operate based on whatever habits you had been built on, Um, which hopefully, especially in like risky environments, like the Antarctic or in the mountains with avalanches, you've come up through some sort of ascension of like really good um, travel habits, let's say, or mm-hmm. the way you've identified terrain and a hazard and that you tend to edge a little bit more on the conservative side or with margin, or you just use good procedures at the workplace as a baby. Like, no, I'm not going to re crimp and light this shot, even though I think the shot didn't light, like, no, I'm following the procedure. I'm moving forward. And yeah, yeah it's going to, interrupt my workflow because I'm gonna have to sit here for half an hour, but I'm going to do it the right way. So you, depending on where your bandwidth is at, can you accept this new challenge or are you going to revert to your old procedure? And if your old procedures of how you deal with conflict or interpersonal strife is to, speaking for myself, go to a more controlling manner that actually is not met well by your teammates, that's not going to serve you well. So there are some of those habits or procedures in your own personality that you sometimes have to walk back a little bit. And that's like, that takes a lot of awareness. And then your awareness is impacted by all the other things you're going on in your world. What else do you have to be aware of to be aware of yourself? So it's this like cyclical thing. It's like hard to figure out where where to insert the stopgap measure to fix it. And maybe fixing it isn't the idea. It's kind of just more understanding that it's there and finding a way to work with your teammates to overcome it or with work with yourself.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good distinction of, I think, uh, being a fixer. I think for a long time, I, I think I was like, Oh, I'm the fixer. But are you really ever fixing anything? No, I think you're like acknowledging it, and then determining what the best next step is. And I think self awareness is like, Self-awareness is this really tricky leadership quality where I think uh, step one is recognizing, oh, I do this. And oftentimes people are like, I have great self-awareness. I do this. <laughs> but do you actually know what impact that has on people, right? So the whole intent versus impact of oftentimes we as humans don't intend to do something as malicious or hurtful to somebody else. But the impact, if we don't have a greater awareness outside of ourselves, we don't understand what the impact is. So I think that a lot of what I've been trying to instill in folks, and I would say this is comes from Knowles, like I've been able to take so much from Knowles is leadership skills. And so I am constantly, um, like last year, I did this risk management leadership series at work where I did five one hour Zoom sessions for anybody who wanted to come. And I focused on communication and feedback and self-awareness and trying to give people tools to understand that like, To do any of these jobs that we're asking people to do, again, whether that's teaching an avalanche course, being a tail guide, working in Antarctica as part of a field team, we need to have some understanding of our own leadership skills and the self-awareness to say, this is what I need to be the best version of myself. and letting people know that so that we can hold each other accountable. And so something that I'm getting ready to teach a pro one up at Mount Baker will be the second all women's pro one with Ari, which is super exciting. I got to work one last year. And during that course, at the beginning of the course, we asked students, in addition to all the preparation that we're asking them to do, um, you know, like practice this, practice your rescue and make sure your gear is all organized and whatnot. We're like, and most importantly, have a plan for self-care. And because um, days are long, we you're going to be drinking from the fire hose, your brain's going to feel full, you're probably physically going to feel tired. So what is it that you need to make sure that you're getting enough rest so that you are clear in the decisions that you're making. And this has been, yeah, I think this is something that personally I needed to do for myself um, of just saying yes to everything and getting up super early and packing in as much as I possibly could in a day. And I think for a long time, I, I wore it as a badge of honor. People would be like, how is it that you fit all of this in in one day? And, and sometimes they am like, I don't know. I just wake up early. I've inherited this trait from my mother where I wake up at like four 30 or five every morning. And I'm like, well, I better get her better to go do something. I have two really active dogs who need exercise so that we all don't lose our mind. Um, but I kind of hit a wall this last year where I was like, I'm not going to set an alarm. I am going to sleep when I need to. I am going to hang out on the couch instead of just being busy all the time. And it's something I totally struggle with because I am just a doer. I want to, I want to be active. Um, but I think it's, it's this theme that I, I think anybody who's been on this podcast before, anybody who's listening to this podcast, if we are in the avalanche and snow, the snow and avalanche industry, we work really long hours almost because we to a certain degree, like if you're a ski patrol, you have to get up really early, right? Um, and then depending on what time you go to bed, like you could be sleeping four to six hours a night. I don't know, I don't know who you are out there who can sleep four to six hours and still function, but I certainly can. Like I need eight hours. And so my self-care plan is I need to eat well, I need to sleep. I need to make sure that I'm drinking enough liquid um, and and I make it sustainable. And do I nail it all the time? No. But again, if I go back to what I was saying before about role modeling, right, from we can do it from top down, bottom up, middle, doesn't matter. Um, if we all start to do this, I think like we show that you can have a job in this industry and you can do it for a long time. But we've all known people who totally burn out you know, and sometimes we just want to change. We don't want to be on our feet anymore. We want like a desk job. We want a total change of, of scenery and pace in our life. But um, I think with anything, if we come back to like, how is it that we take care of one another, then we also have capacity to help people when they need it, especially in an industry where we are used to losing people. We are used to trauma and that's not going to go away. Right. But what could potentially go away is like, How do we, again, like foster an inclusive and positive work environment? And how do we encourage people to take care of themselves? And again, there are some jobs that are like, you just got to work 12 hours a day. But hopefully, you also get big chunks of time that you're truly taking that time off. And maybe that is just like, that is going out frisky. I know for sometimes for me, like, I feel like I have adult onset ADD. Like, I need to move. Like, I need to move my body. And if I don't, I kind of freak out. And so... Um, I need to have some form of exercise every single day, but that might just be like, put my fish scales on and take my dogs for like a little spin in the backyard, you know, just something to move around. Um, but yeah, back to my point of like this whole idea of self-care and I just feel like, yeah, I guess that's my wish for a lot of people in this industry is that you figure out what it is that works for you. Um, and then we're not afraid to share that, that it's not this, like, it's not a weakness. You know, like I think self-awareness is, again, like we are all living in this human experience and we have um, limitations and whether that's like eventually the battery in our body will get drained and that affects the battery in our brain that makes decisions in these risky environments. So how do we keep both of those like engaged and full to a certain degree? And when they're not full, how do we let people know that? you know and that's yeah.
1: that's critical the, the the recognizing it and then responding to it are the things and in an industry here that's always been averse to four letter r words yeah, <laughs> uh, i think many mountain folks would rather deal with rain than confront their own immediacy yeah. to need rest and yeah. um and that's just saying that like this is a piece of the operational culture that exists that is probably and maybe even been studied enough to say with fact that has led to accidents or the ability of a cascade of failures to start to occur where people because they're tired overrun or too many too many items in their working memory that something gets lost and then you know you kind of do this drift into failure as some folks in our industry might say but the self awareness piece can't take place, like we were saying earlier, unless you've had some rest. So, yeah. like this whole cycle exists where if you can't pull yourself out of it, hopefully your team can pull you out of it. And you are able to trust those people to make a good self or a good assessment of you if you can't make one for yourself. And I think that's the other piece is fortunately in our industry with things like the Responder Alliance coming on board with some of these peer support teams that have started to be developed um, a lot by ski patrols, um, uh, a lot by other organizations, guide and climbing. Um, I know like the resilience project that the A3 has put forth. There's, there's all these initiatives and really dedicated people behind them. But I think it also takes all of us in the industry to really look objectively of like, whoa, look at all these resources. I want to never have to use them because I take care of myself. But inevitably, things are going to hit the fan. The mountains are dangerous. The freedom of the hills means freedom. And if you choose to go into those environments, you are walking a line. You don't necessarily want to eliminate risk. You want to eliminate consequence. Something I heard recently from a longtime instructor, and I thought that was really powerful. Um, Thanks, Howie. You know, Mm -hmm. going out and thinking about like, I, I engage in risky activities because of the way it elevates my being, but I want to reduce the consequence. Um, so thinking in, along these lines of how we take care of ourselves, how we take care of our team members, super critical. And fortunately, we're at a time now where this is like a mainstream topic. It's brought up at almost every SAW, uh, Snow and Avalanche workshops across the globe. I'm looking forward to seeing how it shows up at ISSW uh, at the international level in Bend next, this fall. Um, And I'm looking forward to seeing folks like yourself who work in these other industries to have more cross-discipline interaction, to bring things from them to us and vice versa, and to start bringing in all these other voices from different walks to help us all on our own journeys so that we can continue to do these jobs we love for a very long time. I've always told my students, like, this is a lifetime sport. And if you Mm -hmm. want to be a professional in this world, you need to have a plan to take care of yourself. And I I really credit a lot of that from coming from conversations I've had with you, Kate, is really making that as something that you exemplify in the classroom, which is hard when you only have Mm -hmm. five days with somebody and you're like, I got to impart all this information on these folks. And I got to meet these guidelines that may or may not be realistic, but you want to get it out there and you want to like, you feel like this is your connection point with them. So you got to excel, but really the way that you, the way that you impact them is showing them that you can throttle back a little bit and model like maybe what this industry could and should be, at least in some circumstances.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I was actually thinking about like the pro one or a pro two, they're intense, right? So I can talk all I want about self-care and like get enough sleep. But the reality is like, you're just going to sleep less, especially as an instructor. There's a lot of, I don't want to say, well, sure, it's pressure. Like, I'll, I'll just say that. It doesn't necessarily come from the course provider, but, like, I want to show up. I know that these people are, are coming, and they're excited to learn from us, and they want to walk away with the certification. So it is my job to make sure that, like, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to get them to that standard. and And we can usually do that in a pro one. And I'm going to be tired at the end of it, but I'm going to do my best. Like this next week leading up to this pro one, like I won't drink alcohol. <laughs> I'm not a big drinker anyway, but I'm going to be really hydrated. I'm going to eat well. I'm going to get a lot of sleep so that I go in with like my battery totally full. And the last couple of years, um, I go on a big international adventure after I teach one of these courses <laughs> because I'm like, I'm going to do this as, I mean, one, it's just a good time of year for me to do it. Um, It's kind of end of the winter. It's the end of the Antarctic like field season. um, But I've just found that it's like a really nice thing to have something to look forward to. Now, granted, that's a total privilege. Not everybody can do that. Like you might be moving on to like more work. And so again, I could see somebody pushing back on everything that I'm saying right now, like, oh, that's nice that Kate has all of these self-care, you know, like things that she does or that she expects us to do. And some people just going to work a lot. And, and I get that. Um, but how do we open the door to say that it's okay for people to find out what it is that they need to be successful? You know, like, what works for me doesn't work for everybody else. And I totally understand that. Um, and so how do I support people around me um, when they have different needs, right? And so having that conversation of truly, what is it that you need? And then how do I recognize when, you don't, when you're not getting what you need? Um, and so for me, a lot of it is when I think about the year as a whole, I need to have these outlets for like this curiosity that I have for other humans and things outside of the mountains and these small towns, <laughs> like the beautiful small town that I live in that I absolutely love. And I can't spend 12 months out of the year here. It's too insular. It's too homogenous. Um, but I love it in so many ways but i need to have these other experiences that draw me to other parts of the world to remind myself that there's this really big world out there you know it's really easy to think that the only thing that's important is avalanche education um and it is right now for me in this moment you know and when i'm up on Teton pass and in the park and all over the place here throughout the winter um it's easy to get really focused on that uh but it's really important to like take those blinders off and be like there is a big world out there and for me personally again um, not everybody has that opportunity. Um, I just don't do other things that would cost money, right? So I'm like, I'm going to put my money towards international travel because it's important for me to rip those blinders off, take a step out of Victor Idaho and go see how other people are living their lives and like expanding my perspective on the world, which then I, again, like it's the cyclical nature and I bring those experiences back to um to my work, to my life. um, And whether that's like last year I went to Pakistan and that's the first time I've traveled in a Muslim country. And I know plenty about Buddhist and Hindu countries having spent a lot of time in Nepal and India, but had always been intrigued because I wanted to go through the Karakoram and, and visit there. But I mean, admittedly, I had an implicit bias to Muslim culture and, you know, some of that was just by, you know, like, the media and whatnot. Like I had this like fear and I was like, I know that I shouldn't have that fear. And I went there and I had like the most amazing experience. People were so friendly and beautiful and caring and I felt safe and all of the things. And it just was like, it was a really cool, like heart opening experience of knowing that there is a large world out there and in the world, there are so many things that we deem important, right? And so it's nice to step out of our bubble of in this moment of like, in this moment, what's really important is that I get prepped for this pro one, and I do a really good job. And it'll be really nice when I get on a plane a week after that, and go, um, I'm going to Australia. And I've never been there. And so, you know, just going to explore somewhere and wear wear flip flops. (laughs) And that sounds great. Um, And so yeah. So I I think like the, it's important for me to like balance all of that time. And I think a lot of us in this industry, we do that, right? We work really hard and then we have these periods of time of like, maybe we just go to the desert, you know, we go camping with friends or whatever it is. And so we have to find these ways to recharge our batteries because again, I can talk about self-care until the cows come home, but the reality is, is these jobs in the avalanche industry, rarely are they ever eight hours a day. I get that. And so how do we balance that throughout the year and how do we peel back the layers to have these conversations when we go into working these courses of, um, you know, I shared with my instructor team the other night, I have a friend who's really sick and um, and she's my age and it, it's awful. And I was like, this is affecting my ability right now to be really present. I'm going to do the best I can, but just know that there are going to be times where I might just be really sad or I might just need to have this moment of like leaning into that grief. And it's important for my team to know that because I can't fake that, you know, and I'll tell the students too, you know, because that's part of I want the students to know that we're real humans and we're not just these robots that like wake up and do it over and over and over again. Um, And we all have things to deal with. And, you know, it's like comes back to COVID. Right. Like we could talk about that as like how that's been hugely impactful to our lives. And I think we want to just, I would love to forget that it ever existed. (laughs) I'd love to go back to like life without COVID, but that's not reality. And so just saying, hey, we get it. Things have been hard. And so let's just, let's remember to have like human moments throughout the day of like, if you're having a hard time, let somebody know. And I think going back to like Responder Alliance, A3, Resiliency Project, like there are so many um, resources and we're starting to normalize the fact that we want people to utilize these resources. And I think that's just so cool. Like I had never been to therapy until two years ago. And I'm like, why have I not been doing this my whole life? This is amazing. You know, and um, I've learned so much, you know, and I've been challenged in ways that like my friends aren't going to challenge me. And I'm certainly not going to challenge myself. Um, but on the flip side of that, having the support when you're like, why do I feel this way? Why am I stuck? Why, you know, and um, because we we have seen... And we've experienced a lot of grief and trauma, as I was saying before in this industry. and so having those resources is massive, because we're complicated.
1: We are. It's a, it's a complicated field. Um, in order to be engaged in it, you have to be able to distill things from the complex down to the the simple, as you know as simple as reasonable. Uh, but you bring up all these great points just around, you know like getting outside of whatever your bubble is. Um, So if that means you have the resources to travel internationally, I think that international travel is one of the best. And if it takes you three years to get the resources to do that, it's worth every step. Hopefully you've built in some strategic pauses during that three years of work to really kind of focus on your self-care a little bit. But if you can make something like that happen, it's kind of like the cliche is, what is it, travel is the one thing you spend money on that makes you richer. It's Mm -hmm. because you get to go out there and see how the rest of the world operates, particularly if you're traveling and not doing the thing that you do here. Like I really love international ski travel, but I learn a hell of a lot more when I go out and I don't travel for skiing and I just absorb the, the the people, the places, the food, like the, the cultural richness that exists there. And make time to not have to be thinking about my objective, but make time to like, my objective is learning about this, these people, this place, the history, good, bad. Otherwise, like what happened here to make this what it's like today. And the great thing about that element is you can travel there through books, podcasts, and shows. You can learn just a lot. So, so if, if your self care means like you're going to set aside three, four days to binge watch some documentaries on Nat Geo, like great, go exploring in your mind and Probably. maybe get somebody else to watch it with you and then have some conversations about it and and build some momentum around like this whole thing that's different. I loved what you said earlier about like curiosity over assumptions, but just general human curiosity is why we're even on this podcast talking about this. Like we're curious about what could be in our industry. Mm-hmm. And you know, thanks to Caleb getting this going for so many years ago, he wanted to bring in all the diversity of perspectives that exist. And that was exemplified with bringing on extra hosts to tap Mm -hmm. into their networks and make it even more like diverse in terms of perspective. And so Kate, I just really, I love kind of all the threads that have woven through this and that you've been able to articulate to our audience and also helped me think and reframe some of the things I do. And I'm just really glad to have somebody with your energy and, persistence in this industry to kind of always be looking at what could be next, what can we do to improve, and what do I need to do to take care of myself so I can be part of that challenge and not get burned out and left on the sideline in the future. Yeah,
0: yeah. I was actually I was thinking about what you were saying of traveling for ski trips. Um, so if you ever want to come with me on a ski trip, I seem to bring bad weather with me. So I, I take my skis on these vacations and sometimes don't even really use them because the weather is so awful, but it doesn't matter because, you know, you end up having these great experiences. I went to Italy a few winters ago with some girlfriends and, you know, the conditions were pretty awful. We skied a little bit. Um, we played a lot of Yahtzee and, you know, practiced our Italian and ate great food and we were in Italy. So what could possibly be bad about that? But, um, Yeah. You know, I think I was really, I'm grateful that you asked me to be on the podcast. I think I struggle to still feel like I'm relevant in the avalanche world. And I've had this conversation with a lot of people who, as they stop teaching full-time or stop guiding full-time, they're like, how am I still going to have a place in the industry? You know? And it's like, well, I don't know what that really means, right? Like I think if we continue to engage on some level and it's something that we have passion for, um, <clears throat> we can remain relevant. Now, granted, I'm not out every day in an operational setting like I used to be, um, you know, like guiding or whatnot, but that's where that personal passion kind of drives me to stay involved. And so the last couple of years it's been, wake up really early and put my headlamp on and go out for a ski before I come home and I'm sitting at my desk. And so, you know, some days I just spend the entire day in my long underwear, taking phone calls and Zoom calls and thinking about all these other things with Antarctica. Um, but I'm staying connected because I know that that's what fills my cup and it keeps my, you know, my battery full. And truth be told, I've skied with my friends more in the last three years than I ever did, like, 12 years prior. <laughs> so I'm not going to lie. That's actually been really awesome to um, connect on that level and not just be, like, skiing for work. So Yeah,
1: yeah. what a concept, I, right? Like, skiing with your yeah. friends. Yeah. Uh, not that our yeah. colleagues aren't our friends most no, of the time. It's just but it's different. It, it's like, oh, I can kind of turn that switch a little bit. Like I'm not shutting anything off. I'm just engaging in a little different way and I don't have to be on. Um, Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully your friends aren't asking you to lead the tour all the time because you're the expert or the engaged one. It's like, no, we can go out there and like, want some of my snacks?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think the benefit of like a lot of my friends here, I mean, I speak with a lot of girlfriends and a lot of um, my girlfriends I've known for 20 plus years and we worked at Knolls together. So if you think about how we communicate and we make decisions, they're kind of steeped in the same, like the same foundation. So I feel really lucky to be able to go out and like, sometimes we are making decisions that are very quick because we know one another really well. Like we know like, Oh, this is really going to annoy so-and-so, you know, or, you know, we just, we just know what each other is going to think and, but we can talk about it really easily because we have that positive and inclusive environment because we've been friends for so long. And so I feel incredibly lucky to have that. And then I can take that, those tenets, how I feel and try and emulate those in conversations and discussions that I have with people of like, this is pretty awesome. When you can make decisions around kind of high consequence moments with people, you can do this in an objective way and fairly efficiently, but it takes a while to get there. I mean, you don't, that's not something you always get, but um, but I feel really lucky. to Live in a place where I've got kind of a rolodex of people that I'd be happy to go out on a considerable or a high danger day and still be able to go find some good skiing and rely on one another for making good decisions. So
1: solid, yeah. Build yeah. the rolodex and yeah. uh, and find <laughs> yeah. find those find those people that can be mentors that give you like specific advice at critical times, but also find people who can be good coaches. And then just good allies and that you can like lean into in a, in a time in your life that's maybe causing you a little bit of grief or sadness or extreme joy. I think that's one underrated yeah. thing is like we almost punctuate our own joy because we don't want to like come across as like everything's working out for us. But, you know, hopefully your friends are like want to share in that joy with you. And so, you know, I got to take off my serious face sometimes and like share my joy with other people like, oh, I did this really cool thing. Do you want to hear about it? And most of the time people are like, yeah, tell me. And it's like, awesome, cool. like I think that's got to happen a little bit more often too because this is a joyous sport. We've uh, turned into a profession. This is a beautiful world and we've got all these great folks around us that teach us something about them, the world and ourselves. So Kate, thank you for being part of that for me today and for our audience. Um, I look forward to connecting with you Soon enough, um, maybe out in the mountains, maybe around your dinner table in the backyard with flip flops on. But uh, we'll uh, also be able to share some um, resources or anything that you might want to share out to the community in the show notes, so we could put something there if if you're so inclined. Um, and just want to say thanks again.
0: Yeah, John, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about the things that I think have fueled me for a long time and continue to do so. Um, so. Thank
1: you. Right on, Kate. Have a great afternoon. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. We really thank Kate for taking time out of her busy schedule to come and give us some insights on ways we can continue to move the needle. Music for today's episode is provided by Ketza. Find the music to inspire your intellectual curiosity at ketsa.uk. Artwork was created by the ever-talented Mike T. Check him out at miketea.com. And this episode was produced by yours truly, with some insights and oversight from Caleb and company. If you're so inclined, check us out on social media. Give us a follow at The Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you listen on. More importantly, tell a friend, tell a colleague, tell your mom, get them listening. And send us any feedback or ways that we can improve to the theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. We've got some great episodes lined up over the rest of the season, so make sure you keep tuning in. I know I'll be reviewing some episodes that I've missed on my way up to the Great White North as I go to take... An educational adventure to Fernie to take the Canadian Avalanche Association AVSAR Advanced Skills course. And I get to see how the other half lives and does things. Looking forward to it. In the meantime, make sure to keep your tips up and maintain your ability to be surprised.